the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. WTPN, Pinellas Park. And they're very serious about this. I want you to know this was not a side issue. This was not a side issue of, of Jewish culture. The rabbis taught that not only was a Jewish person to hate a Gentile, it was his biblical obligation. If he didn't do this, it was a sin. Secular history records the deep bitterness that existed in the ancient world between Jews and Gentiles. Deep bitterness. Once again, as we proceed through the Sermon on the Mount, we see that the Pharisees had perverted God's word to try to justify their sin. We'll learn more about that bitterness between Jews and Gentiles today on Verse by Verse. Welcome. Pastor Steve Kreloff is our teacher for these Bible classes of the air. He's the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. In Jesus' sermon about kingdom living, he corrected the teaching of his day, and our day as well, dealing with murder, adultery, divorce, honesty, and retaliation. Now in this last portion, he corrects our attitudes towards our enemies. We have a lot to cover today, so let's get going. Here's Pastor Steve. Well, let's open our Bibles once again to Matthew chapter 5 as we conclude this fifth chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. We're not finished with the Sermon on the Mount, but we'll conclude with chapter 5 today. And I want to read to you the last section of this chapter, beginning at verse 43. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This morning we've come in our study of the Sermon on the Mount to the sixth and the final contrast that Jesus gave between the false righteousness of the Pharisees and true righteousness that he said is to characterize genuine followers of himself. Remember that Jesus had said back in chapter 5 verse 20 that I say to you unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Meaning that citizens of his kingdom had to surpass the righteousness that that characterized scribes and Pharisees. Now, certainly Jesus didn't mean that we had to do more than the scribes, more than the Pharisees. That was impossible. Nobody could do more than they did. They were meticulous about their many, many 
religious observances. Jesus wasn't saying you have to do more than they do. What he was talking about was you have to have a different kind of obedience, a different kind of righteousness, a different, a different type, a different quality of obedience. He was looking for obedience that stemmed from the heart, a heart of love for him, an attitude of humble submission, a heartfelt obedience that addressed proper inner attitudes as well as proper outward Actions. See, this definitely wasn't the kind of righteousness that characterized Pharisees. Their, their type of righteousness wasn't righteousness at all. It was a legalistic form of self-righteousness. They had twisted and perverted many of the laws of God so that they made it say exactly what they wanted it to say in order to fit their sinful lifestyle. They imposed their views on scripture. In other words, instead of submitting themselves to the true standards of scripture and saying, this is what God says and we will obey, they reduced God's law to just mere outward rules so that they, they could easily keep these outward rules. They had no heart attitude and, and thus they would appear to others to be holy and righteous. And that's all they really wanted. That's all they cared about. They didn't have the attitude that said, God, I, I want to please you by my behavior. What do you think of what I'm doing? Their attitude was, does my behavior look good to others? Is it impressive enough? And you can see this, by the way, in chapter 6, verse 1, which Lord willing, we'll, we'll uh, study next Sunday, but look at this, just a little glimpse ahead. This, this reveals their attitude. This reveals their, their motivation. Verse 1 says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Now, you have to live godly before others, but not to be noticed by them. That's what they wanted. Jesus said, otherwise you have no reward with your father who's in heaven. You know what reward you get? You get the applause of men. That's what you wanted. That's what you got. That's all you get. Now, that was their attitude. And so, beginning with chapter 5 and verse 21, Jesus illustrates the difference between this legalistic righteousness of the Pharisees and the genuine righteousness of his disciples by highlighting six specific Old Testament laws. Now, he could have chosen any number of Old Testament laws, but he chose six specific Old Testament laws, and his purpose in doing this was to reveal the true standard of holiness that God has always intended for his people to follow, not the contrived, artificial, manufactured standard of righteousness that the Pharisees invented. And quite frankly, they're the only ones who followed it. Now, his approach is exactly the same in every one of these laws. And that's what we've tried to follow. First, he shows the inaccurate way that each law was interpreted and taught by the ancient Jewish rabbis, as well as the scribes and Pharisees of his day. And then he gave the true and accurate meaning of each of these laws, as God originally intended them to be observed. He wasn't giving anything new, he said. He said he didn't come to change the law. He just came to to affirm that this is what the Old Testament always taught. But because of the ancient rabbis, they became obscure and, and muddied, and nobody really understood them anymore. But Jesus brought them to light. So having already explained the correct meanings of the laws about murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, and retaliation, Jesus now closes this section of his sermon by focusing on something that, quite frankly, folks, all of us need practical instruction on, and that's love. What is the Old Testament? What did the Old Testament teach about love? And specifically, not love just in general, but love towards those who don't love us. Love towards those who are hostile towards us. Love towards those who we would call our enemy. Now, 
not only is this relevant for us, but I have to tell you up front, this is painful for us. This will be a painful experience, but we have locked all the doors. You are not allowed out. And it's painful because we all struggle with this. Every believer who's honest has to say, you know what? I really struggle with loving my enemy. And, and that would be very normal for us. In fact, you'd be, you'd be an odd duck if you don't struggle in this area. Years ago, C.S. Lewis was publicly criticized and accused of not caring much for the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, a, a man wrote a critique about him and publicly published this. He said he doesn't really care about, for this, about the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but here was, here was Lewis's response to this criticism. And I believe after studying much of the Sermon on the Mount as we've done, you can, you can relate to this. You can understand what he's talking about. Here's what he wrote. As to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. Now, I relate to this. I can understand this. And I think we would all agree the Sermon on the Mount is like a sledgehammer that knocks us flat on his face. And you'd have to be kind of strange to enjoy that. So none of us really enjoy enjoys the Sermon on the Mount in one sense. I mean, we enjoy it because it's God's word and and we want this painful experience because that's the only way we can correct it and please the Lord. But the Sermon on the Mount just keeps pounding away at us, pounding away with some incredibly humiliating blows because it convicts us of our sin by showing us here are the standards of righteousness. Here's what you need to aim for. Here's what God wants you to to do. Now this morning as we as we continue, we're going to see what it means to love an enemy and really we're going to take another round of pounding. That's that's what it is because loving an enemy is something that doesn't come easy for us. It's not natural. In fact, unbelievers are not capable of this. And believers struggle with it and we need all of God's grace to obey this command. But listen, here's the encouragement. The very fact that Jesus commanded us to love our enemies tells us that we can this is not something that's so far removed from us that we can't, we can't do this. Because God never commands us to do something that is impossible for us to do. So if Jesus said, you are to love your enemy, then, then we can do that. We just need to understand what that means. And I think that that's where most people fail. They don't understand what it really means to love an enemy. They're looking for feelings. They're looking for emotions. And that's not what this is about. As I said, unlike the unsaved who have no capacity at all, to love their enemies, those of us who know Christ can and will love our enemies. We've been given the God-given ability to love those who don't love us. Now, in order to teach what it means to love our enemies, we're going to see that Jesus approached this, this law just like he did the five previous ones. First, he mentions the false view of love as taught by the rabbis and the scribes and Pharisees. And then he gives the truth about what the law really, the Old Testament really taught about loving an enemy. So let's begin by looking at the Pharisees' false view of love. And in doing this, you're going to get some insight into the, the mental rationalizations of Pharisees. They still rationalize the same way. Verse 43 says this, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, once again, as in all the previous laws mentioned by Jesus, the expression, you have heard that it was said, was not a reference to what the Bible said. 
It's not a reference to what the Bible taught, but rather to what the ancient rabbis said the Bible said. You have to understand that or it doesn't make sense. Jesus isn't saying, you've heard that the Bible teaches this, now I'm telling you something different. No, that, that, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, this is what you've been taught that the Bible says, but I'm telling you what it meant, what it really means. So understand that. In other words, this is what the typical man on the street in that day had been taught by his religious leaders. And what the typical Jewish man on the street had been taught about love was that the law of Moses taught him, they said, to love his neighbor, but to hate his enemy. Now, the obvious question that you and I should have in reading these words is, where in the world did the rabbis find that in the Old Testament? Where did the law ever say to hate your enemy? The answer, it didn't. It didn't. There is absolutely no statement given in all of the Mosaic law commanding us to hate our personal enemies. There's no, there's no statement there. There's no law. So the question is then, why did the ancient rabbis say that the law taught this? Why did the scribes, the Pharisees come along and, and say and teach this? Well, they based their teaching. Now watch this. They based their teaching on a statement in Leviticus, specifically Leviticus 19 Verse 18, which states, I'll read it to you. You shall not take vengeance nor bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, notice the phrase. Notice the phrase, you shall love your neighbor. That's found in the text. And that's the phrase that Jesus quoted from the teaching of the rabbis. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. See, the rabbis focused, now watch this, they focused on this one phrase found in Leviticus 19.18, and they managed, though, to twist and manipulate this phrase so that they forced it to mean something that God never intended it to mean, but what they wanted it to mean. And here's how they rationalized. Now, if you think this is, is, is bizarre thinking, you're right. They rationalized that in commanding the Jewish people to love their their neighbor, God was also commanding them to hate those people who were not their neighbors. Now, did the text say that? No, but that's what they said. I'm to love my neighbor, so that must mean I should hate those who are not my neighbors. And who were not their neighbors? Who might that be? Well, since they interpreted their neighbor to mean their fellow Jews, then Gentiles were not their neighbors. And therefore, they said, we are commanded by God to hate Gentiles. And that's how they ended up concluding that the gist, they said, of Leviticus 19, 18 meant that they were to love Jewish people and hate non-Jewish people. Now, as I said, if that sounds like warped thinking, it is. It is warped thinking. But let me explain how they managed to come up with this perverted view of God's truth. The whole issue boiled down to one question and really only one question. They said this, who exactly is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? The rabbi said that the term neighbor was limited only to fellow Jews, an Israelite, a kinsman, someone who belongs to my race and my religion and my set of values and my faith and everyone else is an enemy of mine. That's what they concluded. In other words, Jews are my neighbors, non-Jews are my enemies. But I want you to know they're absolutely wrong. That's not what the Old Testament taught. They're absolutely wrong. Though their tradition said, and only their tradition, because they said it, they interpreted it, 
their tradition said that the term neighbor meant only a fellow Jew. The Old Testament concept of neighbor included those who were Gentiles and those who were even personal enemies. God never said your neighbor is only a fellow Jew, only someone who believes like you. You know how we know this? Jesus made it very clear in the New Testament. Remember the story in Luke chapter 10, verse 29. Someone asked him, what's the two greatest command, what's the greatest commandment in scripture? And he said, and I paraphrase, to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and your neighbor. He said, the second most important commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19, 18. But the, the Bible says in, in chapter 10, verse 29, there was a man who asked this question who looked to justify himself, looked to weasel out of obeying this. And he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And I just imagine he said it with a smugness, and who is my neighbor? Jesus responded by giving a parable. It's a story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan was one who was of a people group uh, that, were, that, that were hated by Jewish people, and they hated Jewish people. The Samaritans were sort of a half-breed and half-Jewish uh, religion, had their own unity. They were, they were really pagans with a little bit of Judaism thrown in. And the Samaritan, though Jews and Samaritans despised each other, this Samaritan met the need of a wounded, dying Jewish man. And in telling this parable, Jesus revealed, and here's the point of the parable, that our neighbor is anyone, regardless of ethnic differences, who is in need of our help, even our personal enemies. Jesus made it clear, neighbor is anybody you come across who has a need. That's your neighbor. It doesn't matter what his ethnic background is, what his religious background is, but that's not how the Pharisees saw it. And that's the problem. They reasoned, since the law said that I'm to love my neighbor, meaning my fellow Jews, those who aren't Jewish must be regarded as my enemy, therefore I'm to hate them. And they probably justified this hatred of Gentiles by appealing to to the time in their early history when God said, when you come into the land of Canaan, wipe out all the Canaanites, exterminate them, because they they were a plague on the face of this, this planet. And they probably appealed to that and said, see, see, look, God said to wipe out these people. So I'm to have this attitude of hatred towards non-Jews. They may also have appealed to what we call the imprecatory Psalms of David in which David cursed the enemies of God and called upon God to, to judge them. But in doing this, if this is indeed what they appealed to, then they really missed a very important truth about exterminating Canaanite and imprecatory Psalms, those harsh statements of extermination and cursings were expressions of God's judgment upon those who refused to repent. They were not, and they had absolutely nothing to do with personal malice by individuals. It was not an individual issue at all. Here's how one Bible teacher explained the difference between God's judicial statements towards his enemies and the attitude that we're to have towards those who are God's enemies as well as those who are our own personal enemies. He writes, it's one thing to defend the honor and glory of God by seeking the defeat of his detracting enemies, but quite another to hate people personally as our own enemies. Our attitude towards even the worst pagans or heretics is to love them and pray that they will turn to God and be saved. We will also pray, but we also pray rather, that if they do not turn to him, God will judge them and remove them in order to prepare the way for his son, Jesus Christ, as the rightful ruler of this world. But that wasn't the way the Pharisees saw it. They justified their personal hatred by using the statements of of God's judgment directed at his enemies to validate a very wicked heart and attitude that they had. And they're very serious about this. I want you to know this was not a side issue. 
This is not a side issue of, of Jewish culture. The rabbis taught that not only was a Jewish person to hate a Gentile, it was his biblical obligation. If he didn't do this, it was a sin. Secular history records the deep bitterness that existed in the ancient world between Jews and Gentiles. Deep bitterness. Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs, and they did not mean that in a complimentary way. And Gentiles responded by despising Jewish people. In fact, it was quite common in the ancient world for a Gentile to look the other way when a Jewish person passed him on the street. So you had this intense animosity between Jews and Gentiles in the ancient world. And there's, there's actually a saying that's been found of the Pharisees that, that reveals just the depth of, of this hatred. I mean, it was nasty stuff. Here's what it says. It reads, if a Jew sees a Gentile fallen into the sea, and, and meaning that someone's drowning in the sea, let him by no means lift him out. For it is written, thou shalt not rise up against the blood of thy neighbor. But this man is not thy neighbor. So if you see, if you come across somebody who's splashing away and they, they can't swim or they've got cramps or, or something and they can't, they're drowning. If they're a Gentile, let them drown. That's what, that's what this was talking about. They really hated their enemies. Now, I want us to stop here for a few minutes and consider an important truth, a very important truth about the way that the Pharisees rationalized their sinful attitude of hatred because it... it has bearing upon the way that that believers can tend to justify our own prejudice and our own hatred. The Pharisees were experts at at hiding their wickedness by manipulating God's word. And nowhere is this more evident than in the way they they manipulated and chose to interpret Leviticus 19.18 about love. They altered the meaning of this law to fit their, their hatred. Rather than repent, they supported their hatred by twisting the scriptures. See, these men, don't, don't think of them as great scholars who were a little bit off and just a little bit misled. These men were deeply prejudiced individuals, deeply prejudiced. Though they, they wanted people to think of them as spiritual and godly, they were proud, they were judgmental, judgmental they were spiteful, they were vengeful men who looked with disdain upon anyone who was different than they were. Remember that Jesus in the New Testament spoke about a Pharisee who went up to the temple to pray. And remember his prayer? He said, God, I thank thee that I'm not like these others. This trash over here. That was the attitude of a Pharisee. I thank you that you've made me better than other lowlife people. But rather than facing their sin and humbling themselves by repenting, they, they forced the Bible to say exactly what they wanted it to say in order to justify the hatred that, that they felt in their hearts towards Gentiles. Now, you and I don't, don't need to be first century Jewish Pharisees to be guilty of the very same thing because there are many professing Christians today who try to excuse their hatred of, of others by hiding behind certain Bible verses that they have, have misinterpreted in order to justify their prejudice wickedness. For example, there are some believers who actually try to justify their racial prejudice by appealing to certain verses found in, in Genesis concerning the curse of servanthood put upon one of Noah's sons called Canaan. And their view is this. Well, Canaan was, was cursed and uh, it was, the curse was that he was to be a servant to his brothers. So, so they reason, well, that must mean that all uh, African black People are cursed, and that supports our view that blacks are inferior to whites. 
Now, what I've just told you is a very common interpretation of that. That's an erroneous interpretation. And people who hold to that without looking into that often do that to justify their hatred and their prejudice. That curse had absolutely nothing to do with black people at all. It was put upon Canaan. Canaan is the father of the Canaanites. They were Middle Eastern people. They were not black-skinned people at all. But people will use that to this day to justify prejudice. Is that any different than the Pharisees? No. And there are lots of other ways we sometimes misuse God's word to justify our ungodly behavior or attitudes. We might fool people that way like the Pharisees did, but Jesus sees right through that stuff. This wraps up another Verse by Verse, a daily radio Bible class led by Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. For more about Lakeside, go online to lakesidechapel.com or call Lakeside at 727-441-1714. The web address is lakesidechapel.com or call 727-441-1714. If you'd like to listen to today's program again or catch up on previous ones, visit the message archive page at versebyverseradio.org. We have hundreds of audio files there, and you're welcome to stream or download anything that interests you. That's versebyverseradio.org. I'm Jerry Peterson. Next time on Verse by Verse, as Pastor Steve continues teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, we'll hear some words of Jesus that must have hit his first century listeners like a two-by-four up the side of the head. Maybe some modern listeners, too. But these are words we need to hear. here to give you strength between three-star general michael j flynn head of the pentagon intelligence agency knew all the government's dirty secrets he was one of the most respected generals in the military flynn knew what the intel world had been up to he understood its funding he ordered the first audit of the use of contractors this set off alarm bells the explosive new documentary flynn Deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver for the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.